Smartcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Music. Music. Horror. Horror. Subculture. And overall bad Welcome, Welcome to Kettle, to Kettle Whistle, Whistle Radio. Radio. With your hosts, your hosts Dave, Dave and Sean. Creep across somebody else's skull like Chino Moreno. Hey, what a great show with Gojira. More on that at some point. And uh, the best part is I was there with, um, uh, well, about six other folks. And everybody, everybody there had a different show. And I must say I was in charge because I stayed uh, sober. I was the driver that night and uh, nobody else did. What a great show and what a great analyzation of concert goers going six different ways that was fun uh, <laughs> more fun for me and as you know I, I am botanically challenged in all this uh, spring cleaning into the summer and planting now after May or during May has challenged me and I got bit by a thistle and I'm really pissed about that and that's just how it goes however there is a lot to talk about today and a lot going on in your world too uh, we're out there too in your world, which kind of creeps across your own skulls, if you will. I got Captain Sexy tonight and very special guest, uh, Mark Netter, talking about his film Nightmare Code. I got to tell you folks, this movie uh, kind of breaches the contract between you and your little mouse pad, <laughs> if you will. There's so much good music. We owe a lot of people some airtime, and uh, guys, I'm going to get you on. Give me some time <laughs> to catch up. Norwegian Soft Kitten, you'll be hearing them. Go listen to them now. You don't need me to do that. We'll have them on. But Norwegian Soft Kitten, that's some great rock and roll right now that you can find. Go everywhere you find them. YouTube immediately, I'll say that. And Flat Spot Records, we got some punk coming your way. That's never going to end until they get tired of me. Also, too, Patrick Ray, little film called Arbor Demon. He's got a few other ones. They're all good. He's consistently nail biter, I believe. Uh, that, that, just great films. 
but Patrick Ray, R-E-A, yeah, we spell them out here, folks, that's what we do, They Wait in the Dark is coming up. But if you want a little precursor, uh, see, you know, get a taste of Patrick Gray's films, Arbor Demon. Fun. Very different ending. Uh, yeah. Different kind of creepy. Uh, what are you guys listening to? I, there's a whole lot out there right now. I see Def Leppard is going nuts right now with, uh, you know, Hair Nation. And they took over. They have their own station. And, yeah, we got tickets. And, I, you know, hey, I, I love them, too. But enough's enough sometimes <laughs> but hey you can't get enough of a good thing or can you can you people have turned on corn right now like they did on nirvana yeah enough of that what you just get tired of listening i don't know what that is we all do it we're all guilty but you're also kind of dumb for turning your back on your favorite band and uh first love unless they really did something to piss you off you know like shot your girlfriend That'd be a really weird situation. Now, speaking of weird situations, Captain Sexy's in the house. <laughs> that was for me. And uh, Mark Netter coming up here. Let me tell you about this film. It is completely what would happen. It's the first film told by an artificial intelligence. All right. And it is available on YouTube, so you can actually watch it. I'm not sure when or how he's going to pull that. That is my tease. But yes, it's a fun movie. Takes two watches, I'll say, to get all of it. Maybe three. There's a lot going on. We're going to decipher it. And until then, we're going to hear a little bit of rock and roll right off the record. And you're going to hear where this comes from as well. Oh, yeah. And on my last episode with uh, Chris Mariano, um, I did screw up. What else is new, right? Uh, In the heat of the moment, uh, The Last Dinosaur was a fun film made, uh, released in Japan, but made here and uh, made by Rankin and Bass, which makes it stranger. I said Sid and Marty Croft. I know better. I just had them in my head talking with Chris Mariano. It's hard to not talk Sid and Marty Croft. But it was Rankin and Bass who you know them from all those Christmas movies that you guys watched. Uh, I watched, too, The Little Puppets and all that. But yes, they made live-action films, too, a few of them. And uh, one of them was The Bermuda Depths, which is very interesting with Connie Selica and a giant turtle. They did make The Last Dinosaur as well, which is a great dinosaur romp from, like, the late 70s. I Honestly, you've got to see it. It was the only... I heard that it was read, read that it was released in Japanese theaters back then i guess the only big screening probably something in la at that point too but joan van ark doing the the theme song is <laughs> and the end credits probably worth the price of admission all right so yeah redemption song all right guys sit tight and uh thanks for listening as always yeah that was my redemption song but now for baby please don't go off the nightmare code soundtrack
Folks, friends, and fiends, hey, welcome back to your, well, could be your new favorite show, especially you iHeartRadio fans, welcome back, thanks for listening, and a uh, new friend, uh, as far as I'm concerned, acquaintance, and uh, yes, also a work partner in some fashion you may hear about at some point, Mark Netter, writer, director, producer of the movie Nightmare Code, and I want to call this, yes, Captain Sexy is with me, I want to call this a cyber phantom horror movie, Where do you, how do you feel about that? I love that cyber <laughs> phantom horror movie. I'm digging it. The director likes it. <laughs> I don't know what Sean thinks, but I like it. Let's see. I like it. It's de- it's definitely sci-fi. So yeah, um, and and dramatic. Yes, Sean is more sci-fi than horror, so I like to have that little balance, if you will. But if you find the right horror movie, he's all in. Um, now this was okay. Again, you wrote, directed, produced uh, with MJ uh, Rotondi. Yeah, yeah. So Michael Rotundi, my uh, writing partner, MJ Rotundi, um, could not have done it without him, ultimately became a co-producer on the movie and just has been with me every step of the way on it. Well, it definitely holds your attention. It was very, my gosh, what a brave way to dive into. Is this your first film? It's my first feature film. Okay. Um, you know, I, yeah, and I've made shorts. I'd gone to uh, New York University in the, the grad film program at Tisch and graduated from that. I've made films in college and then i worked for directors and producers when i first got out west in the uh kind of mid 90s as an assistant here to, the, to them here in hollywood um so you know i kind of knew my way around the set and mm-hmm. um had experience in you know trying to get what was in my head out there um, for people to see you could tell it was not made by an amateur there was something going on here and um this movie comes with accolades. Uh, I'd like to talk about reception. First, we'd like to hear what it's about. How would you su- summarize your, your, this film, Nightmare Code? Okay. So Nightmare Code is the first feature film that's told entirely end-to-end from the point of view of an artificial intelligence. We do it with surveillance cams, PC cams, eyeglass cams for at least half the movie. You're watching four images at once like a surveillance monitor. So the movie takes place in a startup where the uh, they're in trouble, they're running behind, there's been a tragedy in the recent past, and they're desperate to finish this program that itself is seems to be taking on a life of its own. And in the same way that the program is messing with the heads of the characters who are trying to finish it inside of the movie, it messes with the audience's head with these different ways it goes in and out of the surveillance uh you know, the four surveillance monitors, which the images are not always in sync because uh, the, the AI, which in the in the movie is called Roper, uh, Roper is messing with you. Big time. Um, and when I say brave, those four screens. And I was that was one of the questions. Like, when you see the, the blurry screen, is that the interaction of the AI coming through? Because I know that, uh, that, Sean, you brought that up. I yeah. did. I was interested in the, the, uh, the, um, the, the reasoning for that, I guess. And, uh, what well, it, let me what ask it, you a question because this is—it's great that you guys are, were noticing that. Sean, when you were watching it, did you notice any difference in the blurry screens over the course of the movie, the blurry quadrants, I should say? I did. I, I, I. I'm trying to think of. You brought it up what, first, actually. I, I did. I <laughs> was trying to understand the it reasoning. Bothered, and, it bothered him. And, well, well, it did because in I a mean, creepy way. It, it it was kind of creepy, and it was you know what 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 is the. Um, uh, what am I? I'm fumbling here. It but feels what, like it's watching you back. That's how it. Oh, right. that's so good. So good. Kind of. So, yeah. That's uh, so you know. Yeah. 
I mean, I can sort of tell you kind of what our thinking was. You know, one of the things that we learned that Roper does in the movie is Roper has the ability to basically change what you see. It's amazing, um, right? At least as it's recorded, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the way that we saw those those blurs was just Roper getting better and better at it over the course of the movie. <laughs> and if you if you check out the film, the the blurriness is really heavy at the beginning. There's like you know different levels of it, and so by the end of the movie, the blur is. The blurs are kind of clear because Roper is just getting stronger and stronger the whole way through. Like that was something I wanted to bring up to you. Uh, like, what profession were you involved in? Like before making this film, like, was it corporate mayhem, or were you more of a technical technical job, or both? So uh, you know, my background was I, I had gone to uh, graduate school in New York University in grad film, and then I'd come out to LA and worked on features. And then I got dragged into the video game business by a good friend of mine that I made through a friend at film school, a guy named Jordan Mechner. And Jordan's uh, the kind of legendary video game creator. He created the Prince of Persia series. And we created a game called The Last Express that I produced. And I learned how to work with programmers at that point. Hmm. And I learned what it meant to be in crunch time because when you're programming a game, especially one with some at the time cutting edge technology, it is just endless and it's torture. (laughs) Um, And then I worked for a mobile social network startup that was venture capital funded in the uh, mid-2000s, a company called Xanil, and saw, again, kind of how that worked, what were the corporate pressures, what were the, you know, things that the leaders were trying to get, uh, get, you know, accomplished for investors while the, or customers, while the programmers were, you know, struggling to make deadlines and, and fighting the code. So, um, I've had a lot of programmers who have seen Nightmare Code tell me that it feels accurate to their experiences, and, and some say too accurate and too scary, <laughs> So, uh, which I consider a great compliment. So it really is informed by, and, and also uh, my, my partner, my writing partner, MJ Rotundi, had, had worked um, kind of in tech and associated with Wall Street. So we kind of knew that milieu, and we, we knew how those companies functioned, what kind of pressures they'd be under. And how programmers talk and how, uh, you know, QA people, people that test the software, talk and work and what their personalities might be like. So we were able to make that um, pretty authentic based on those experiences. Well, I'll say it's effective. Um, Part of Sean's life is, well, his occupation is computers. So uh, when he sees a blurry screen, he's got to wonder what the heck's going on here. But when it became (laughs) creepy, that's when I I was like, oh, it must have hit a a mark, uh, quite literally, no pun intended, with him. Because he, he's just like the four screens, and they go blurry on you, and it's like creepy. And I'm like, yeah. And I had to ask you, is it looking back? Because we're both fans of like the Mothman and movies where you just feel a presence, but you can't find it. You don't know where it is, but it's watching all the time. Were you going for that? Yeah, there's a real meta feel to Nightmare Code, but I don't think it's like the meta of just the director talking. It's the meta of the program talking. So the way that when when I got into the editing with with my editor Kyle Goodrich. We basically thought of it as, why is Roper making this cut here? Why is Roper going full screen here to show us something? Oh, he's showing it because he wants you to know there's like a knife in the place. You know, there are different things that Roper does because he's trying to manipulate you, create some fear, misdirect the audience at various times. And ultimately, we felt that the, you know, this is kind of, when you get really well-directed films like by like a Kubrick or Scorsese, you feel a director's hand in there and it feels... You're happy because the director is kind of leading you along, but it can be brutal at times. And and we kind of thought of Roper as the filmmaker being, um, you know, basically at all points trying to express 
in the most effective ways its power to the audience. Because our feeling is that what the movie ultimately is trying to say is, is some things about technology. And one of the things that I learned about technology while working in it is that you, you can't really ever keep it a secret. Like, you know, you can't really, it, it, technology always will out at some point. <laughs> What happens when that technology is an AI that doesn't necessarily have our best interests at heart? You sound like Ian Malcolm talking about dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. But yeah, we got some character questions too. Uh-huh. So um, you had an actor from uh, who also appeared on our our fans of this show might know from The Walking Dead, um, uh-huh. played by uh, Andrew West. Um, are you part of the process for your the selection for the film for the for the actor selection, or do you leave that to the talent agencies, or or how does that work for you? Oh, that's a great question. Okay, so you know, typically if you're directing, um, I would argue your number one job is working with actors, uh, almost above anything. You can hire someone to write, you can hire someone to shoot, pick the shots, but you need to really you need to be the only voice the actors hear. So you want to you know have a hand in approving you know, choosing every single actor. Um, in our case, we were an independent feature film. It's a small movie uh, from a budget stance, but big in terms of ideas. It was always funny when people would, would ask the actors, oh, is it, a, is it a little movie? And they'd be like, well, what do you mean? You know, or they say it's a big movie. They say, what do you mean by big? <laughs> but um, so what, what happened in this case, again, because this movie was made on a super low budget, and even though it's got like 500 visual effects shots in it, and, uh, you know, it was it was shot for under $100,000. It was finished for under for around $200,000. I mean, it's it's a real triumph of people that were excited about the subject matter and all that. Mm. And I needed to go find actors. And I, I uh, actually uh, called my friend Jordan and he knew a, a guy named Jamie Wolrab, who is a coach for actors here in L.A. and an actor himself and actually appears in the movie in the in the opening early boardroom scene. And Jamie uh, read the script and we met up in a bar and he said he loved the script and he wanted to help. And he pulls out his phone and I pull out my phone and we start looking at people that he knows who are professional actors. And we got most of our cast through Jamie. Hmm. And thanks to our line producer, who herself was just out of NYU, 23 years old, she knew Mae Melanson, who plays Nora in the movie. Yeah, she, oh, she's amazing. Movie. She's amazing. Well, May's amazing. Mm-hmm. And and uh, May knew Andy because they shared a commercial agent. So she had recommended Andy. And so we'd seen a lot of people for Nora and um, and for, um, you know, and for Brett. And we had seen them over, you know, a, a period of time. And nobody was quite right. There was one guy I went out to for his character and then he didn't want to do it. And I'm so glad he didn't take it. And when I finally met with each of them separately, with Andy and May, uh, I, I, it was always for coffee at night. So I met, you know, and it was at the same place in Westwood, this place that doesn't exist anymore called the Novel Cafe. And May came and we talked for three hours. Wow. And she said something to me so great when she was leaving. She said, well, you know, she really looked forward to doing this movie because she could do things in it that she doesn't get to do a lot hmm. in other movies. Okay. And I said, oh, I'd always thought it was like, because, you know, her character becomes very strong by the end of the movie and becomes essentially kind of like mm-hmm. a little bit of, a, you know, it's, kind of, you know, the old last girl thing, which becomes a bit of an action. Oh, thing. I almost said that. I was going to say that would be a spoiler, but last girl, right? Well, yeah, kind of, kind of there, right? But kind and, of. And I like the idea that, 
that the movie kind of moves from Brett's point of view to her point of view by the end. And mm -hmm. she said, um, and I said, oh, so is it because you get to do things that guys usually get to do in the movies? And she said, no, it's I get to make choices. Mm. Yeah. And she really loved the choices that Nora got to make. And then she introduced me to Andy, meet Andy the same place a week later, three-hour coffee. You know, not expected to be three hours either time. And just adored the guy. And he went back. And oh, and, and the thing he said to me was he loved that this guy had such a solid objective. He plays mm -hmm. a programmer, uh, Brent Desmond, who was brought in to uh, this startup where the previous lead programmer, the genius behind this Roker program, has gone crazy. He did a murder-suicide, killed a bunch of executives, killed himself in the office. There's mm -hmm. still blood on the walls. Yeah. And Brett is sleeping in he has to finish this program within a month because that's the deadline. And he's under pressure because he mm. did something very bad in a previous job in Chicago. Yep. So you see Brett in the office and he's talking to his wife and daughter over Skype. And, you know, he's starting to become close with the people that are working there, testing the program, including Nora and three other QA people. And um, so, you know, when Andy sent us after i met with andy he went home and he recorded himself doing some of the scenes and sent them to us and i saw them and i was just crazy excited and i sent them to uh mj rotundi my, my writing partner and producing partner and we both thought that it was the first time that we had seen our character the way we'd written it from all the people that had actors who had auditioned mm -hmm. and with May, it went even further. With May, we saw the character, when she did uh, sent us some some video, we saw the way that the character should be. And we actually rewrote the part for her and made it more mature. Um, and kind of, you know, she had a big effect on kind of that role. And it was really eye-opening. So I, I adored the casting process. And then I adored working with both of those actors and everybody else. That's amazing to me um, as a writer that, you know, you, you could actually meet somebody that's going to play the role of something you wrote, and somehow the role becomes bigger and better. I guess that it gets beyond what you initially had intended. And that is always probably a great, lovely surprise for you. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Well, I think that's the definition of a good actor. Like a good yeah. actor takes what hopefully is decent writing and turns it in. And I mean, they can't save shitty writing, but what they can do is they can take your thing and bring something to it. They bring some life experience. They bring some emotion. They bring some technical skills. But ideally, they're bringing a point of view about their character and they really embrace it. You know, they need to be the expert on their character, you know, when we're on set. They should know more about the character than I do. And you know, when you work with somebody like May, she actually asks you a series of questions that you work on together about her character. So she understands the backstory that you make it feel very rich. Even stuff you may not necessarily notice when you see on screen, it just makes it feel more real. Um, so that was a, you know, it was a great experience. And then the third kind of, you know, major actor in this major role is that of, um, you know, the, uh, the previous programmer who's lost his mind, uh, Foster Cotton. And, he um, was actually, he's, he's been an actor longer than anybody else in the movie. He's been an actor for, uh, you know, since the 80s. And, um, and Googie Gress, mm -hmm. and uh, just a great guy who was actually the coach of my son's softball, uh, 
softball team. Oh my god, I bet you. Baseball team. Do you still look them the same way? Or <laughs> well, this was, was so funny. So I start writing this with Roto. I mean, it's kind of funny story how we started on this thing. Well, we wrote it in forty days because uh, the guy who put up the the money originally, my executive producer Craig Allen, is you know the movie wouldn't exist without Craig. You know, he he had wanted to see a script, and so we wrote as fast as we could. But I'm writing this, and then I'm going out to the baseball practice, and I keep looking at Googie because <laughs> I'm thinking, like, okay, you're a deranged programmer <laughs> who is now tormenting people beyond the grave. You he's know? he's and, quite and the just, presence. He's quite the presence. Um, right. And in real life, is like a teddy bear. You know, I like can probably tell that. I, it's you answered the question. I wanted you to d develop uh, uh, Brett Desmond, uh, the lead character, but you definitely got into him. Um, uh, Sean had a question, but you sort of covered it. Please. Yeah, you uh, kind of covered what? it. Was uh, well, um, you had brought up uh, Foster, and we wanted to know if you know is does he play the monster or is the code the monster in the film? Well, now you're asking the question that I'm asking the audience, right? Ah. So we're bit. We're asking the audience, is the code haunted? Is the code just an unbelievable AI? Did Foster enter the code in some spiritual way, or did he just program it in such a way that it reflects his personality? Yeah. And if you talk to programmers, see, a lot of us, you know, especially before I got into the, the, the you know, working with programmers, I thought, you know, everybody would approach a programming problem the same way, and the code would look the same, 10 programmers, had the same problem, the code would look the same at the end of the week or the end of the day or whatever. Not true. <laughs> and, no, it's not true. And, and and in fact, I remember they would test programmers that would come in to join, you know, a team at a game company I was working at. And they would give them a problem and they'd do it up on the board and write some code. And I distinctly remember our lead programmer, I walked in one time and he goes, ah, we, we did it totally differently. We thought about it differently and did it totally differently. But this works. This works great. And programmers then started, told me as I was working on nightmare code that programming has like the fingerprints of the programmers all over it the way that they think the way that they comment the code and things that you you know are hidden in the code that you just see if you're programming um that it all is essentially like a fingerprint so um mm -hmm. that's what's behind the question that you're asking right there and, and i would ask you what do you think happened man uh without <laughs> giving spoilers uh it's kind of like uh i I wanted. To, I like to believe that. I always like to believe in the supernatural. Um, but it's okay. it's easier to believe that maybe you had an evil guy who died because they. Eh, spoiler alert. They do say they they saw a presence, a phantom smoke, something go from the person to the screen or to the computer in mm -hmm. one of the, the shots. Mm -hmm. So there, that's that makes me believe in monsters too. But is it the spirit of a guy? Or do we just leave it ambiguous? I don't know. Well, I think that's part of the fun of the movie. I agree. Um, you know, and I kind of go back and forth myself. But I do <laughs> think that we... So, you know, it's funny because one of you is a little more horror, one of you is a little more sci-fi, right? That's what yeah, I think, yeah. I'm hearing. Yeah, a little bit country, a little bit rock and roll, you know. <laughs> one of the inspirations for this movie was that I'd seen a uh, found footage script and thought, oh, my God, it doesn't look that hard to write one of those movies. Of course, <laughs> I was wrong. But... Yeah. Um, and so, and we really studied uh, like the horror genre in writing it. You know, I love science fiction. I'm more of a sci-fi guy than a horror guy. But you know, movies like The Thing or Alien to oh, me yeah. are my kind of horror movie because yeah. they're they're really based in science. And mm. my favorite horror movies are The Shining and The Witch because they're the only ones that scare me. Great stuff. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, you know, I'm not a I'm not a big like uh, slasher guy. I mean, I love action at the movies, and you know, I love I, you know I don't mind blood. I mean, I love The Northman, you know, which is so uh, a bloody near right. horror movie. Yeah, but um, but you know, the idea of you know that there's some brains behind it and that it can work on different levels. That there's interesting concepts, but also viscerally, there's points where. You know, when we would show it at festival screenings and, and things like that, the audiences would, would verbally react to, you know, what's coming <laughs> up on the screen. But, you know, I think the scariest thing in the whole movie, and this would be a spoiler, so I want to be careful about it. Right. Is there's a moment late in the movie where Roper really betrays Brett, the program, the computer program, mm-hmm. basically oh, yeah. destroys Brett's, Brett's life. Oh, yeah. And, and I can tell you, well, I, I don't know how you guys felt when you were watching it, but when we see that with, in screenings with the public, it's like you hear people at different parts of the theater realize what's happening at different points, like very quickly, yeah. and it just builds. And, you know, it's so gratifying when there's noises coming from the audience. Oh, absolutely. That's what you live for. Um, and we're going to get into that because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to inch around that and not spoil that scene after this really quick break, folks. And we're right here. I, and I always say this because I don't like radio shows where they they go through a 40-minute thing. They don't re-announce who you're talking to, what you're talking about. We got Mark Netter, okay, writer, producer, director of Nightmare Code. And it is available to watch for a limited time, maybe, or maybe it's there for a long time. But we'll let you know after the break where you can find it. And we'll wrap things up here with Mr. Netter as well. And, we got boy, do we have some good and hot questions for you, my friend. I can't wait. All right. Thanks, guys. Be right back. Hi, this is Martin Atkins from Public Image Limited, Killing Joke, Ministry, Nine Inch Nails, Pig Face and the Damage Manual and Murder Inc. and Brian Brain. And you're listening to Kettle Whistle Radio. I'm not afraid of the dark, but you should be. There are things that's well here in the dark. Things best left unseen. With the initial smoke clear from the fall of tomorrow, the blood now flows even thicker with dwelling in the dark. Eleven stories. All bits of the same mysterious puzzle. Fitting together with horrific parallels to its predecessor. Get ready for new truly terrifying tales set in the broken world from the fall of tomorrow. Take a closer look at what's now dwelling in the dark. If you dare. Available on Amazon in traditional print and ebook. Get your copy today. Visit www. FairlyDarkProductions.com for more info on the author and his work. Okay, as usual, all the best conversations happen off the air, and Sean is always the reason for that, as you picked out a, uh, well, you guys have a similar interest in a film, and one of my favorite books. It is a sci-fi book. I still want to read the book, but but yeah. I didn't know there was a book. Yeah, it's a That's Scottish, cra- yeah, a Scottish author. I have, actually, it's underneath me in my library somewhere, and I gotta give, I've yet to give it to Sean, and they follow it pretty darn close, uh, and that is uh, In the Skin, right? 
Under the Skin. Under the Skin, Under the yeah. Skin. The book, I think it's also called that. It's very disturbing. Scarlett Johansson uh, plays, well, if you want to call it an alien, sure. Oh boy, that's that's an intense. But it's but it's a presence that's there, yes. kind of like in in your film. That's that's you know, always there. And we were talking earlier about the thing you had mentioned Ooh, that, yeah. and you know, there's obvious an obvious sort of tone there with a presence being there and always watching and mm. you know, yeah. So. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I think is fascinating about horror movies, like you know, I think I sort of told you guys, I'm not a huge horror fan. I don't seek it out all the time, but I. I do seek out seek out what I people today call elevated horror. Okay. You know, like The Shining, The yeah. Witch, The Thing, the you know, Alien. And what's fascinating, and, and also by the way, there's tons of movies and TV shows that have horror elements. There's times when I'm watching Euphoria, where I think they're you know wow. using horror tropes to yeah. scare the hell out of us. Oh, I agree. But I think the thing that's really fascinating about horror movies is that it act once they start to kick in, they they activate the whole frame. So you're, especially if you're in a movie theater, you're watching and, you know, a lone guy or a lone woman are walking into a room and we know some something bad is about to happen. We're feeling dread and we're looking all behind them. We're looking at the corners of the frame. We know something's going to happen. We don't know where it's going to come from. So that's that sense of presence you get in horror. And in our film, I think we take it another level because, you know, if all the shots are essentially being chosen, by the horrific presence, you know, that, that creature that's trying to come in from the other world, um, you know, then that really puts you, hopefully, you know, puts you, you know, even more on edge. And I think the people that, that understand the movie, you know, really get that feeling and they, they, they get that sense. Well, that's, uh, that that's goes right back to Mothman, because that's what freaked me out, is when you get the point of view of what could be the Mothman watching what's happening and what he's, uh, well, what his web of uh, deceit, if you want to call it that. Um, yeah, I, I dig that, when you get the monster's point of view. And I kind of, like, Jaws, it's the same thing, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, Jaws opens with the monster's point of view, mm -hmm. and then the most famous one was the first Halloween movie, where oh, yeah. basically you're, you're Michael Myers, and you even get mm -hmm. to the point where he finds the mask, puts it on, and now we're looking through two mask holes. And, like, I'm remembering that from, what is it now, like 40-odd years ago nah. when I saw that in the movie theater? I haven't seen it since, but I'll never forget that scene. So, you know, that, that idea of presence... I think is really fun to work play with and uh you know hopefully we did it in sort of a, a new way because we're talking about artificial intelligence which um you know yeah. is, uh, is here and it's huge uh so before we broke there again we're talking to mark netter uh producer writer director of nightmare code we are talking nightmare code uh, there's a scene in what goes right back into that ambiguity and you could give the spoiler or not um, there um, there's a sex scene that may or may not take place are you willing to answer that <laughs> well I think it definitely does take place okay um, but I think that that's kind of where things you know that's that's the point that kind of triggers things going off the rails or uh, blurred for for the last part of the story, you know, for like the kind of brings us into the sort of waterfall of bad news that happens, mm -hmm. you know, at the end of the you know second act and and, and leads us into the, the climax. So, um, but it's interesting that you thought it might be ambiguous whether it happened or not. You know, the first time, the, that, the first time I watched it, then I kind of really picked up on it. <laughs> I'm good either way, but you know, it's funny the um, you know the, the kind of one of the 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 uh, Behind the title. So our movie is called Nightmare Code, and that refers to computer code first most. Uh, you know, in the, in the uh, 
programming business, sometimes people say, oh, that guy wrote spaghetti code, meaning that it's crazy to follow the logic and it's too twisted. And, you know, if you're a new programmer being brought in to work on a code that on someone's code, that's spaghetti code or really bad code, they actually do call nightmare code. So that was the idea behind the, uh, the, the title from, from the most um, literal point of view. But we also felt that the term code is really about codes of behavior and that in all kind of movies and uh, TV shows that you watch, you know, generally what you're watching are characters that are dealing with some sort of codes of behavior, whether it's the cop code or the mafia code or whether it's the, um, uh, you know, marital code or whatever it might be. And what we were thinking is that technology is changing the codes of the way that we treat each other, our human behavior. Mm, yeah, algorithms. Yeah, exactly right. And that, you know, there's things that happen now. Like, for example, we give over our decision-making process to computer code all the time. We may set things up in advance, alarms, alerts. We may, there are programs that will write to us even, you know, without a human pushing a button uh, because things have been set up in such a way. And now you have artificial intelligence, which can, you know, literally improve itself as code through trial and error at a blazingly fast speeds. So, you know, I don't know if have things changed, you know, if somebody has traveled far away and they are communicating with a loved one over Skype, do they feel closer to that person than they would have, you know, 30 years ago when they couldn't have done that? Hmm. Or does it actually ultimately make them feel more lonely? That is such a How totally, like wow, that's a big time different yeah. perspective that I never even thought of. Yeah, you know, it's, you build all these things in there and you hope that they at least, even if people don't necessarily, you know, talk about those specific things after they see the movie, hopefully it affects them in some way. I, I joke around and I call Facebook the time tunnel because uh, there are people I probably haven't talked to in 20, 30 years. And now we have these relationships again. And uh, sometimes maybe you're not uh -huh. supposed to, <laughs> you know, and as far as nightmare, well, we've seen, <laughs> go ahead. Yeah. I mean, we've seen people do all kinds of things, you know, you know, there was a, I don't know if you know, uh, remember Citadel, which Facebook was Facebook's uh, first shopping tool. Oh, wow. And if you bought something on Citadel, it automatically posted to your feed automatically. So people were getting busted for birthday gifts. That oh, they were no. Give, you know, a loved one. Or they were getting busted for gifts that they were giving to their mistress or you know, the <laughs> person they were cheating with. Like, oh, you bought me flowers? But well, why didn't I see them? You know? Oh, that's fair. And that's like, hence the gasps that you heard in the, in the theater during screenings. Um, that, I, I think, I, that whatever is shown will just say, it's a lot of folks, it would be their worst nightmare that gets broadcasted to the one person you don't want to ever see it. And that is a true nightmare. I mean, you scored. Yeah, or the two, or the two people you wouldn't want ever to see it. Uh, yeah. Oh, my God. I forgot <laughs> about that. Yeah. I wasn't going to give that away, but I actually forgot about, yeah, there's H. Well, no, no, I'm not going to say, we'll just say her name's Lacey. <laughs> Lacey, yeah, Lacey's oh, fantastic. Poor, that poor kid. Um, but yeah, I think I am Sean's nightmare code. Sometimes I just text him zeros and ones and let him figure it out. <laughs> Five years running. 
<laughs> Tell me I'm lying. <laughs> You're not. <laughs> I, I get your texts all hours in the night. <laughs> do you do that to your partners too? <laughs> I do not do that to, uh, to okay. my wife or anyone else. I try to avoid it. I, it's, I have weird, weird hours. You can blame Sean for my weird hours too because anyway, <laughs> we won't get into that either. Uh, it has to do with job and occupation. But all right, so there is also, because we love music on the show and we listen to, of mm. course, uh, Baby Please Don't Go earlier um, by Joseph Lee Williams. Um, uh, Big Joe Williams, I think, probably did Williams. one version of it. Okay. Yeah, we yeah we wanted to do our own version of it, so we recorded it and did kind of almost like a, a punk rock version. Yeah, of it yeah, yeah, I love it. For the uh, end credits. But, you know, um, just to, and this is not a, a big spoiler, but one of the threads in the movie is that one of the ways that you can kind of tell that Roper is infecting people is they start humming, baby, please don't go. <laughs> Yes, yes. Uh, as a matter of fact, my my wife was coming in and out of the room, and she's just like, you know, you you need to ask him about the blues thing. <laughs> Is there an underlying blues inference going on here too? Um, was that just a, like your taste in music, or is this something you wanted to convey? Well, what did you guys think? Did it did it make you? Did it bring up any associations? Uh, did it feel like it made sense, or or? Was it more confusing for you? I were oh no no. I uh, see. I personally, when I write and when I, I love music, when it comes to any storytelling and if it's affiliated, I don't think a director makes a mistake in that case. If you're asking me that, so our feeling was that the so many tech movies you see that are about technology. It all takes place in a very modern space, and everything is very, you know, kind of modern or slightly futuristic or, or whatever it is. And, we love the idea that there was some sort of ancient evil behind Roper Ooh. that goes back to like the Delta Blues or maybe even beyond. Oh, man. And that by having this this kind of viral tune that moves from Cotton to to Brett over the course of the movie would be a way to have this this kind of ancient thread of of evil that you know wasn't just uh, from the digital age; it was from the pre-digital age. Okay. No, that you just now you just got the synapses going for me. Now I'm thinking maybe he's thinking prequel and going way back, <laughs> <laughs> like you know New Orleans or something. You know, I definitely thought more about sequels and ways to continue the story because, um, again, not to give out spoilers, but there is something that happens at the end that opens the movie up in a big way. So um, there's there there are thoughts about where that could go. Um, and whether that would be maybe in a in a scripted podcast or another film script, you know, we have to see. Okay, well, um, you definitely got some accolades, and I noticed that watching the trailer, of course. But uh, I'll just I'll say them out loud right now. But uh, the, the new filmmakers of New York Fall series, it was 2014, and the Philip K. Dick Science Fiction Film Film Fest in 2015. Then I saw one I'm not familiar with, Winter Shriek Fest. You got best film. Shriek Fest, yeah. I'm not best familiar thriller, with that. Best thriller, yeah. Is that okay? Shriek Fest is a is a really great. Uh, it was kind of it was our launch and our and it was our world premiere and. Um, it's an L.A. film festival that's been going on for a long time. Denise Gossett, who runs it, is an actress and also a just a great uh, film festival, uh, you know, person. She uh, and the film got the, the festival had gotten these accolades from from filmmakers. Mm. We um, sent her the movie, and they had really just about closed. The uh, you know we were past kind of the, the deadline for entry, or, or just on the edge. And she basically warned me and said that she, you know, it might not even be able to be seen in Ooh. time. You know, she has people that look at the movies for her to prejudge. 
Um, she calls me at 11 a.m. the next morning because she had just watched the movie herself because there was no one else to give it to. There wasn't time. And she was like, I want your movie in our festival. Hey, and so, that's what you want. So we were just very happy about that. And then the Philip K. Dick Film Festival in New York was very meaningful to us because for um, your listeners who, you know, hopefully a lot of them are Philip K. Dick fans, but he's the great science fiction writer who basically died just as his career was taking off in right. the movies with Blade Runner and, um, yeah. you know, The Man in the High Castle. And, you know, he's just, there's a, a total recall. All of these and many more are from him. And then a lot of things like The Matrix are essentially his ideas that have been, you know, adapted or transmogorified by by creators. So, you know, we were thinking a lot about Phil K. Dick really was very much in the paranoiac tradition of science fiction, whether it was sort of an, uh, an invasion of the body snatchers type stories that he would mm, tell about yeah. people being taken over. But his most kind of famous trope is that you'll be in a story and you know, following a certain character and turns out that character's reality is not a, anything of what you or that character thought. Hmm. And it'll switch halfway through the story. And then you'll find out there's a much bigger world and crazier things going on. And uh, a lot of it is due to technology that has now been warping the way that we think. So winning the <laughs> Philip K. Dick Film Festival in New York with Nightmare Code with our, our little low budget, you know, sci-fi horror thriller was just a, it was just a kind of a dream come true. Yeah, man. I mean, this was like a code that was made with good intentions and then like a Frankenstein effect just takes place um, during the film or even after. What was it like, like uh, the reception from people? I know you spoke a little bit about gasps in the audience, but what else did they have to say? Uh, too real? <laughs> too scary? Well, you know, I, I think people uh, were able to identify with the characters, you know, and, that's, you know, particularly, I, you know, there's a lot of different characters in the movie, even though it's it's kind of, you know, in a sort of enclosed setting, you have, you know, different QA testers and, and different people that are kind of, you know, fun to watch and yeah. follow. But, but you know, uh, Andrew J. West and, and, and May uh, Melanson, they, they're so good together. They have great chemistry. And they're both very committed to their roles and they're, you know, they were fantastic to work with and, and they're very truthful as actors. So I think that people kind of related to these issues. I mean, you know, Brett's a guy with a kid who's kind of fucked up his job and is kind of desperate to make the next one work. I don't know. I've been through that in my life. Mm -hmm. I know other people have. Yeah. You know, there's 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 in various degrees. So, you know, that idea and then being under pressure to get something done that's where as you're working on it, the goal seems more and more elusive every day because as Roper, you know, rewrites itself as code and, and is more taking on a life of its own. It's sort of like the closer you get, the further away you get. So I think people relate to related to that. And then, you know, with May, you know, being this person who's kind of in a, a little bit of a searcher, you know, she's you know gotten out of some bad relationships. She's trying to find herself and she's, you know, making something of herself. And now she's, you know, suddenly comes across this thing in the workplace that is, you know, horrific and mm -hmm. um, life-threatening and, and actually is, you know, you know, kills people. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of a, it's, it's a fun person to kind of identify with. Yeah. And one of the things that may brought to the role too, was the idea of her having these panic attacks that come from her, her, her backstory. And uh, it may be a little subtle, but you may notice in the movie, there's points where her, she, she, she gets hit with these panic attacks and, yeah. and she, kind of can't function, but ultimately she uh, overcomes, which is, you know, mm -hmm. uh, kind of, I think, something that the audience is related to. And I think that we all relate, I think audiences really related to the technology side of it. I mean, we are so, uh, 
you know, at this point, we're so it, technology is so integrated into our lives that we kind of know a lot of the things that happened in the movie are almost like second nature that, you know, even things like that whole surveillance monitor look of the movie mm -hmm. uh, and storytelling, you know, would that have, I don't think it would have worked being uh, that persistent if it was 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Oh, you definitely but, scored that uh, feeling that diabolical presence. You definitely, um, from the onset, I felt it. Good, good, good. I mean, I, you know, I do feel the movie, you know, it's, kind of starts with a bang and then it kind of slow burns for about you know half an hour and then you know the, everything starts hitting the fan and we did say we mentioned earlier about uh, nora being the final girl but really guys folks friends and fiends that's not a spoiler there's a lot going on there and she in a sense really is not the final girl um and i can't say anything else about <laughs> that true. i cannot say really anything true. else after that um let's see here also too this is for both of you both of you being techs uh techies um, I think this the, the 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 solid the good intentions about the pitch that that he had for this tech company to buy this program um, that was the allure. Do you think that any tech company would buy into this idea, like an Elon Musk type, um, the good intentions of seeing what people are feeling? Um, yeah, absolutely. Right so now. What's, oh, yeah. Here, here's what's fascinating about this. So, you know, and, and maybe Sean has a different opinion on this, but so 12 years ago, or pardon me, 10 years ago, when we shot this movie. You know, we did a big search. We wanted, you know, what is the, what are they working on? Well, behavior recognition software sounds fascinating. There was no behavior recognition software. By the time we released the movie, there was already several companies that were doing behavior recognition software. And it was all kind of similar to our idea about it, that if you have cameras that are feeding into a computer, uh, and, you know, the name of our program is Roper because it ropes in all the video in the area. That's where it came from. So it's roping in all this video and it's able to analyze it. And the way that artificial intelligence works is that it, if you give it a set of rules and then help it to figure out its mistakes along the way, it will self-correct and learn. So the idea that, you know, things that we do in our behavior that before technology might've seemed mysterious or you, you know, open to interpretation, that they actually become just data points that can be, if you have enough data, right, you can know what the trends are. Mm -hmm. So why not have a behavior recognition program that can tell us if somebody walking into an airport is a terrorist? Mm, that was brilliant, you know? yeah. Uh, so so this, this behavior recognition software now does exist. It is a, a you know, relatively big business and used for security. So, you know, I think there's a lot of reasons why you'd want to use Roper, although, again, and kind of a George Orwell, you know, science fiction warning kind of way. Um, do we really want to be using behavior recognition <laughs> software? <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, if you tell me it's accurate, is that good? Or is that actually uh, still don't want to use it? <laughs> still too intrusive. You, you just heard, you, you hear Jet in the background. She does join the show every now and then. I think we heard your, your puppy earlier. Yeah, you heard Leon. Yeah. <laughs> They're saying hi. Yeah, Sean, Sean's getting a little nervous now because he, he knows I'm going to ask him if he's behind a, a certain nightmare code where he works right now. <laughs> no. No, not yet. No, no but I mean, a lot of what we do uh, where I work is based on predictive analysis and, you know, uh, automation and, um, you know, uh, uncovering things before they become things, that that sort of stuff. But Yeah, and which, again, Minority Report another movie based on a book uh, or a story by Philip K. Dick. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Who was predicting, yeah. predicting this for anybody? I mean, Philip K. Dick is writing about this stuff in the 1960s. It's amazing. Yeah. I have a close friend that's just, that's all, he reads, read everything he did. And he's introduced me since. And there's also um, a film you could see or a series on, I think, Prime. Uh, that that uh, his short stories, I think. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there's. It is. I forget the name of it. Me but, too. But I think there is one. Philip K. Dick's Nightmares. They or may. They may have called that Electric Dreams. Actually. Electric Dreams. I think so. Yeah, yeah. I think it is Electric Dreams. I think I you're right. Correct. You are right. Um, yeah. But uh, back to script here. I gotta say, Brett Desmond. Um, he's he he, <laughs> he does that typical Hollywood taking a lot of pills thing. Uh, <laughs> is, is this a red herring into how we see him and his his perception, or is this just a prescription? I you know I think it should say something about his character. You know that he yeah. is um, you know relying on things to be able to get through. Um, you know his high pressure situation that he's living in. Um, you know, is really a guy on the edge, and yeah. <laughs> you know, and 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 I think what what happens in the movie is that the code takes him over the edge, big time. And uh, poor Lacey, I, I this is for me because I, I had to ask this, and I think this <laughs> this is part of it. I'm not going to get into the other part, but but uh, Brett Desmond's da- daughter Lacey, uh, she's having nightmares, and the wife tells him because they're they're basically skyping each other or using you know Zoom, um, whatever they're using it. But um, she's having nightmares and. Was she, the daughter, was she infected because mm-hmm. she came in and talked to her father through a, a computer? Um, is that, or is that, is she having nightmares? Or are they just saying, was she like typical kid nightmares? Well, again, it's sort of a great ambiguity. And it's a, okay. it, you, you kind of have like a great answer there, right? I mean, okay. you know, again, if we go with the idea that technology will always out, technology will out, was, was kind of behind <laughs> everything. So why wouldn't some of the technology seep in through whatever they're using. You know, if you go on to, um, if you're a guest on somebody's internet, you have no idea what they can put on your machine or what they can see that you're doing on your machine. Right, right. Right? Uh, yes. And, and have both of you worked I, in offices quite like this? Because I know I did. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, no, very much so. And in fact, this was, a, this was um, so again, Craig Allen, our, our hero, um, executive producer, who, whose company... Uh, Spark Unlimited was the first financers for for Nightmare Code. We actually shot in their offices on weekends. Now, the movie was shot over the course of seven weekends ten years ago, starting um, this upcoming month, June. And you know, we would basically take this video game office and redress it to be more stripped down. We, you know, we built a hallway. We built stuff in there that you know you wouldn't know was was fake, but is but is there. And um, you know, we, we you know that's a real place that people work. Yeah. And that is the kind of programmer startup environments that, uh, you know, I've seen before in the past. Well, before we wrap things up here, I just want to say, um, I'm, I'm, Sean may or may not have something else here for you, too, after I say this. But, uh, Mark, the, uh, the real genius behind your film is the setting. And that's what you were building on right there. All horror movies. OK, phone's dead. Car won't start. Doors are locked. Your nightmare code can do all that by itself and more <laughs> so you set the standard and from the onset of the film oh, oh yeah this place is all cammed they even say it instead of like somebody that's running with a camera through the woods which i'm very tired of because most people would just run or throw the camera at whatever's chasing them or they have to be on their phone while throughout the entire film facetiming everybody that gets tiring to watch what you did was there's a reason why all this is happening and it you were it's not in your control 
Yeah, no, that, you're exactly right. You know, I, I, I'm not necessarily a huge fan of, of found footage movies. I, you know, I went to the theater to see Blair Witch Project. Right, right. Unfortunately, didn't sit in the back of the theater, so I was nauseous for about, you know, the entire time. <laughs> um, <laughs> but we, we, we like that these were really motivated. You know, like, I love the movie Chronicle, but there's a point about two-thirds of the way through Chronicle, or, several points in the movie, but definitely towards the end, where you're like, wait, where are they getting this footage from? Wait, how are they justifying this shot? And uh, there you go. It's a little, little silly. So we we really, you know, it's funny because when I would meet with actors, you know, particularly in supporting roles, and they would be like, "Okay, when am I getting a close up?" And I say, "Well, there's a couple times where you're in front of a computer, so you'll get a close up because the computer will be taking, you know, video of you and feeding it into Roper." Right. Um, not everybody understood that the whole way, but but when they did, you know, it was interesting. And I also love the very architectural uh, side of it. I, I'm a huge Stanley Kubrick fan, and this movie nice. is influenced as much by 2001 a space odyssey as it oh i could feel that you know now that you say that wow yes yes i totally yeah feel that. i even had a running scene i was going to do where brett was going to be running through the office getting exercise using the uh eyeglass camera right to <laughs> kind of mimic the running on the uh when they go to jupiter but ah, it's so cool. you know what I, what um <laughs> yeah but i like the kind of architectural feel of those and i like that you know a lot of times with kubrick you, you kind of know where you are like you, mm -hmm. you start to get a kind of a mental picture of the space so what i really liked about um, the way that we decided to shoot nightmare code was because we're using these fixed surveillance cameras and these pc cameras and occasionally what looks like handheld because the actor is literally wearing a pair of sunglasses that have a, a camera a video camera right in the middle you know that you would get a sense of the space and that the uh, first times you you know the first half of the movie you're learning about the office you're learning about the front door the elevator you're learning about where the different kind of get a visual uh, sort of a visceral sense of where everything is in the office so that when we get to the you know last third of the movie and you know people are running through the office and bad things are happening that it is kind of taken the space that you've come to learn about and activated it and making it made it a very scary space um, and Hopefully that worked for everybody. I'd say it definitely works. Yeah. And also notice, too, I, I can't let you go without asking about your writing uh, credits musically as well. Uh, All Go Down, you wrote the song? Oh, I'll Go Down. Yeah, there's, um, I think I take a credit for something in there. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's, um, I, you know, I, I do a little bit of music writing. My partner at Electric Acids is actually a, a oh, yeah. professional musician writer producer you know with 30 number one hits so he's he's kind of knows that stuff but you know i've always really enjoyed music i like having a, a hand in it i was a music supervisor on three olympic broadcasts just at the start of my career wow so um you know very into it and you know love impressing my kids when i tell them what concerts i went to back when i was their age <laughs> very cool yeah it threw me off it's one of the few credits i was looking at the credits uh, i always do that um when i saw like you know earlier the we were talking about baby please don't go and it was like performed by like four different people <laughs> they all got credit and i was like wait a second whose song is that and then of course it's <laughs> none of theirs but um again great version of that song and uh, man, I, I just music has a big part of your writing, or is it vice yeah, versa? Yeah, no, you know, I definitely listen to music when I'm writing, and I okay. get things that keep me in the mood. I am a big blues fan. I find that um, of all the music that has lyrics in it, the only thing that I can really focus on at work is when it's blues. For some reason, pop and rock, and you know, I'm, I'm like 
drawn away and I can't focus, but the blues keeps me focused, which is great. And I think that that all that that one tune that that I've credited with in the movie is like a source track. It's something playing in like a background somewhere that I had okay that I had done. But um, but yeah, you know, we had a really great composer, Ari uh, Belusian, who is uh, you know again came in through my line producer, who has been you know friends with him since childhood. His uh, main instrument of choice is the electric viola. And I went to see him do a concert with the viola with uh, some other people that he put together in a band, including a, a guy who's a great trumpet player and all that. And I'm like, this is this is the feel of the movie. This is this is great. So, you know, all that underscore that at times sometimes even feels like the pulse of the building that you're in. That's all from uh, from Ari. And then I asked him to, you know, do that version with Andrea Adolf of uh Baby, please don't go. Right, she's the vocalist on it, and I really wanted to end the movie with like a kind of a rock and roll feel. You know, I love the idea that you know at the <laughs> end things have been kind of tragic, and then something really uh, fucked up happens, yeah, yeah, fucked up. which hopefully sends the, the audience out on like kind of like you know their their brains worrying. But as opposed to going with like you know kind of dour, spooky music at the end through the credits, <laughs> I'm like, okay, let's just let's hit the gas. You know, let's reward everybody. <laughs> You know, we had a fun time. It's, you know, there's a rock and roll aspect of the movie and, and we wanted to have that kind of come across at the end. So um, it, I think it's a little unexpected, especially when you're watching it in the movie theater. But um, <laughs> and again, it's a payoff for the song that everyone's been humming during the movie. Now you get to hear, a, <laughs> uh, you know, a studio recording of it. It's great. I uh, know. I love that ending because uh, I was going to mention that, like. He hit this happy chord right at the worst possible moment, but it works. And uh, some of my favorite movies actually do that. At the, and Sean, I know you, we probably can't name a few right now, but like just all of a sudden, it's like in your face, they're playing this. I think actually VHS might be one of those movies. I found footage, but at the very end, they always play a really cool rockin' tune, like punk yeah. rock or industrial yeah. or whatever. It takes you completely out of the context of this horrible place you were in. <laughs> but well, I'll give you a couple of examples that I love. So the one that probably was in the back of my mind, which doesn't even, you know, I think we rock even harder was american werewolf in london absolutely there it yeah. is that's the one yeah yep. the end of the movie and then they play bad, bad moon rising i, I love believe it. and you're just and you're like so you're going out on a high you're not going out on a low even though bad things have happened to our american werewolf in london it was a great guy until he turned into a werewolf you know at least we're going out bopping and you know dancing in our seats <laughs> and then the other one i really love is ryan johnson at the end of brick um i don't know if you guys remember uh, or saw brick but at the end of it uh, the song that comes on is, and this is just a deep cut, it's the Velvet Underground Sister Ray. Oh, no, no. I, I did not see the film. No, neither did I. Uh, well, it's kind of a disreputable track because it's, you know, the Velvet Underground were like the forerunners mm -hmm. of, you know, really smart punk rock. Of course, and, yeah. Max's, and, uh, Max's Kansas City days. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And this was a track where they were all like so mad at each other that everybody tried to play louder than each other and they only did like one take <laughs> <laughs> and the idea that he had the like musical taste to put this super hard rocking like slightly anarchic song on the end of for the end credits of brick i was like okay i want that feeling oh man i'm thinking captain sexy we got to have him on to talk about music next time yeah yeah we gotta yeah get some bands together man it. we could get some music you're allowed to play and we'll uh, we'll talk some jams yeah. yeah right. And the other thing, too, is from a soundtrack point of view, I'm a huge fan of Bernard Herrmann, who uh, was did the score for Citizen Kane, for The Birds, oh, for Psycho, wow. for Taxi Driver. Ooh, you know, nice. This guy was like the greatest Hollywood, in my mind, the greatest Hollywood uh, 
composer of, of all time. And, and so whenever I, I, I've done this with other projects, but definitely with this one with Ari, I was like, okay, let's listen to some Bernard Herrmann and, and you know, see what we can do. He's like a psycho. I mean, you cannot listen to that music and not, it doesn't bring you right back to that, them driving down the road and just, yeah, that, that you said it, you're pulling stuff out of my head right now and you're scaring me a little all bit. Right. Is this the nightmare code happening, Sean? Can you can you Possibly. prevent this? Can you firewall this shit? <laughs> no, I don't think I can. Well, you better figure it out, man, because this guest is scary. Oh, are you guys having computer issues? Because it's funny. We're like working on set, and at certain points, people's computers wouldn't work. They go like, oh, it's Rover. I'm telling Rover's you. Missing. Well, we well we could all say we had a little bit of a sound check issue before, but we don't know which side it was on, but I'm starting to figure it out. Um, so, yeah, we, we got to be an, we It might wasn't be an accident, David. We, well, <laughs> we're infected We're now. infected right now. Yeah. We'll find out when I can't put this show up. But, you know, I, I shouldn't... Uh, I should since we've kind of hinted about it uh we are sort of partners in crime here um sean is meeting you for the first time which is a big deal and uh your partner in crime is awesome. peter and electrocast is uh our new home um so to speak we have several now um but yeah. i just want to thank you uh, you to, for coming on and introducing you uh, the electrocast and to me and the Martise podcast and network yeah the podcast network have- go ahead yeah, Electricast is a podcast uh, media company. We've got a bunch of different networks that are all based on kind of different different areas that people love. And uh, Society 13, uh, which you and uh, Martise uh, are the network leads of and created, a, brought over to Electricast and it's our pop culture network. You know, this is this is where Nightmare Code wants to be. This is where a lot of other pop culture podcasts are, are, are right now and will be. And that being said, where do we find you, sir? Where do you want to be found? Is Nightmare Code going to be on YouTube forever? Oh, so here's the scoop. There's a number of different YouTube places that you can watch Nightmare Code ad-supported. You can watch it on 2B TV ad-supported. Mm-hmm. If you want to download a version of it, we are uh, – or, or rent it from – you can do it from iTunes or Google Play or yeah, just about any service uh, will have some sort of rentable version of it. Um and, uh, you know, we are on Twitter. So there is a Nightmare Code handle on Twitter and on Instagram. I think Twitter's slightly more active, but it has been a while since the film's been released. I am Trink Skits, T-R-I-N-K-S-C-H-I-Z, on Twitter. And uh, always happy to hear from fans and answer any questions. That's, uh, yeah, and... What can I say, folks? You're meeting him here on this uh, particular podcast for the first time, but it will not be the last time. Uh, as usual with us, you could find us. Um, well, Fairly Dark Productions has my stuff and my books as well, which always helps with the funding of things. Uh, Celebration of Spirits as well. I've got a couple of books on there, too. If you like your horror and kids, you know you do. Um, also, iHeartRadio. You find all our stuff there. All our podcasts are there. Um, Kettle Whistle Radio. Um, burningbowlpublishing.com I got a big uh, that's big horror publishing company out here um, if you're into John Russo who co-wrote the original Night of the Living Dead worked with Romero he hasn't stopped he's been he has like 22 books on Burning Bowl Publishing you can find his stuff there he's been on this show many times um, and I, I'm proud to say I'm on that in that publishing company as well with my books uh, I, I, if I could recommend one to everybody I, I always say Dwelling in the Dark because it gives you 11 short stories and you can pick it from there but The Fall of Tomorrow was my first one if you like uh demon apocalypse and that's all i got folks i'm still at fairly dark on twitter sean where the hell are you i'm still just at facebook and instagram instagram kettle whistle radio is there too um mark thank you so much for doing this um and anything else you want to throw out there before we go 
No, I just really appreciate you guys having me on. I'm glad you enjoyed the movie and uh, all the questions you asked were great questions. Well, and we got one more for you. Mark, I actually have a question for you to, to wrap this all up. I was wondering, you know, I, I've, Electric Cast, you know, I imagine keeps you very busy, but I'm wondering on the artistic side uh, of yourself, um, where, where do you find yourself spending your time now? Is it in development of something else? Is it writing? Hmm. Anything going on? Uh, great question. I am mostly focused on Electrocast as, you know, um, you know, partners with, with Peter, co-founder and, and CEO. It, it really is keeping me super busy. Uh, I also do some teaching uh, at Los Angeles Film School here in L.A., so oh, that's wow. keeping me busy. I have been working on a, uh, I, you know, I do have a pilot script for something in a sci-fi vein that is not entirely dissimilar from Nightmare Code, but 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 it, different in a lot of ways and very advanced and, and a little bit more in the future, um, which I'd love to get made. And then we have another script kicking around called uh, All the Way Down, which is a um, kind of a, a, a thriller, a female-driven revenge thriller that Ooh. takes place in a dusty army town in the Southwest. Sean likes female revenge. It's <laughs> a running joke. I wish here. I wish Sean was the studio exec and was financing the movie. <laughs> We'd get it done. Get on that, Sean. <laughs> we get it done. We get it done. Yeah, one day of shooting. <laughs> uh, the rest in post, dear God. Uh, all right. Hey, thanks for listening, folks, friends, and fiends, all of you out there. And uh, Mark, thanks for being a guest. Thank you. All right, and we're gonna give them a little taste of uh, some of your score, if that's okay. Oh, please. <laughs> He's already tired of me. All right. Good night. (laughs) (laughs) Take care.
Society 13, Redefining Podcasting. Today is working for me. Do you believe that for yourself? Hey, I'm Pastor Julie, and I want to empower you through encouragement, inviting you to my podcast, Big Truth Encouragement, where I unpack living a faith-filled life. I created my podcast for the ladies, but gentlemen, you'll gain something too. So I invite you to listen to Big Truth Encouragement on Electricast and any platform where you listen to your podcast. Electricast. Welcome to Transforming 45, the podcast that celebrates the incredible power of passionate voices. I'm your host, Lisa Boat. Join me in conversation with heart-led humans who share their deeply personal stories of transformation. Transforming 45 is here to uplift, connect, and remind you that it's never too late to write your next chapter. So get ready to be inspired, empowered, and transformed. Join me in this community where through powerful storytelling, we heal and reclaim our inherent magic. Electric acid. Electric acid. 